But first I want to, um, is this on? Yeah, maybe a little bit louder. How's this, how's the sound? How's, is it good in the back? Okay, good. Okay. Uh, first I want to really appreciate your practice and thank you for continuing to stay here. I often wonder, you know, why people do, <laughs> given what you're really sitting with in yourselves. <coughs> but I really do appreciate it very much, your willingness to show up, your courage that you keep drawing on to come back again and again. And I am so thankful because then I get to be here too. And I really love being here with you. So I'm really thankful. So I just wanted to start with that. John mentioned, uh, I think it was last night, that uh, I had also just come back from India. We actually discovered that we were almost on the same plane from Singapore without knowing that, but just a day apart uh, a few weeks ago. And I went to uh, South India to be at uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi's ashram, where I've been a, a, a few other times, and uh, a place that really s speaks to me. We, um, I went with some friends, and we stayed near the ashram for a number of weeks. And I was able to just be in that wonderful field of Ramana's energy for this period of time and let that kind of soak into me. Kind of, sometimes I have a sense of drinking from the well there. So I feel very grateful that I was able to go. And outside of the ashram, well not outside, outside of the main building, as you enter into the ashram, there's um, a tank, which they call them tanks, but it's a big well quite a large well, where one of the ways they collect water there. And one day, it wasn't a day that I was there, but my friends uh, with whom I was traveling with were there and told me what they saw happening in the tank. And there are quite a lot of monkeys at the ashram. And these monkeys, they're always look, they always look like they're having a very good time. And they're climbing up on all the signs and jumping on the buildings and swinging in the trees and playing together. And this particular day, apparently, they were jumping in the tank of water and swimming around. And I said, well, but how did they get back out? Because there was probably about six feet from where the water level was to the top of the tank. And they said, well, there was a rope. And they would jump into the tank, swim around, and then climb up the rope out of the tank, and then jump back in. <laughs> and just were like playing and swimming around the tank and then climbing up the rope and jumping back in. I was so disappointed that I didn't see it because it looked like great fun. But when they told me the story, I had this thought that in some ways it's very much like our Dharma practice. That we jump into something and then we find a rope to climb back out. And that rope is the rope of mindfulness. 
this rope of presence or awareness that, so that we're not just left swimming around <laughs> in the stuff of our mind or our consciousness, but that we actually know how to get out. Because I'm quite sure those monkeys were very pleased that there was a rope. In fact, isn't it interesting that they knew there was a rope because some days later there wasn't a rope and they weren't jumping in the tank. (laughs) So in a way, perhaps that's why we jump in because we know there's a rope that we can climb back out. And I think that this is really the, one of the beautiful aspects of our Dharma practice is that it gives us a rope. Because sometimes we might find ourselves falling into the tank or falling into the well and not find that rope, not know how to get out. And it might be even so that in our, even with our Dharma practice, we find ourselves falling in and not knowing how to get out. But then there's a a moment where we recognize that there is that rope and we can climb back out. When we know that that rope is there and and we feel more confident that it's going to stay there, then we can actually just keep jumping in and getting out, jumping in and getting out. And actually, maybe at some point, it becomes somewhat playful. We can start to have some element of some joy or delight in the practice or in, in that, that journey that we're on. And we're very much on a journey into the present moment. It's one way I like to think about this practice. It's, it's not, in some ways, it's not even arriving in the present moment. It seems like it's a journey that sometimes we find ourselves there, sometimes we don't, but we stay on the journey. It's like we keep walking, we keep moving. And even when we, when we have some sense more fully of what it means to be present, it seems like it's still a journey because it doesn't end there. It's not like, oh, now I'm present and it's over. You know, uh, my practice is over, my journey's over. It's, it keeps, we keep going because there's more and more and more to discover and to understand and to explore. It seems the, the deme- that field just it gets more and more interesting and more alive and more engaging in some ways once we know how to be present. So it's not that we end our journey at any point. So it feels like very much like we are on this journey. And the journey seems to be something about meeting ourselves, meeting ourselves as we are, meeting ourselves where we are, again and again and again. And this, is a, this in itself is a new discovery because we're meeting ourselves newly and freshly all the time. It's not like we meet ourselves once and we say, hello, glad to meet you, and then it's over, you know. It's like, who is this? Who, who is this person that I'm meeting? 
it's not, not somebody who is necessarily fixed or solid or static in any way whatsoever, but someone who is actually quite an interesting person. Many levels, many dimensions to our, my, my being or your being. But it seems that as we take this journey into the present moment, we need to keep letting go of things. Because uh, if we're really here, if we're really in the present moment, we can't bring a lot with us. Because that present moment may be very heavy, very burdened. And it may be sometimes that we feel very present and we feel that burden. But then we recognize that we don't want to keep carrying it. It's a burden that we really want to let go of because we know that there's something else that's possible for us. It's one of the things we recognize when we come more fully into the present. We start to feel what it is that we're carrying. And it's not necessarily that when we recognize what we're carrying, we're carrying it all the time. What's interesting is sometimes, all of a sudden, that burden just drops off, and we feel very light all of a sudden, or things become very easy all of a sudden. It's somehow that doesn't seem so linear. Like, oh, I've got this burden, and I'm carrying this burden for the rest of my life. It seems that there's something that can happen where that which seemed so heavy and that which seemed so painful sometimes just just slides off. And we can have these moments, even on retreat here, I'm sure you've had these moments where all of a sudden, even if the but sitting before or, or even the whole morning before, whatever felt very restless or uncomfortable or difficult, and then walking out, and then there's a moment where things just seem light and more easeful and open. And it can, in those moments, and it's, it's, that's so welcomed, it's uh, so refreshing and fresh in those moments. And we take a deep breath and welcome that very much and feel so much gratitude for the, the dropping of that, that burden that seems so real and seems so heavy. But there's something that's revealed there to us in that moment that maybe it isn't quite the way we think it is. Maybe the way that we're carrying or the way that we're perceiving ourselves and our lives and our conditioning isn't quite as solid, isn't quite as fixed in the way that we think it is. So we can have these moments of lightness and ease, and, and, and that informs us in some way. It, it touches us in a way that we want that. It's, it's natural for us. It's a, it's a human kind of response that we want that. We want a sense of ease. We want a sense of openness, our, our heart to be warm and engaged and connected. We want to feel light. And it doesn't have to be some kind of um, 
attachment or there's something wrong with us that we want that. You know, sometimes we can imagine that any kind of wanting in this practice has to go, right? But that can get too, uh, we can, that can be too much of an absolute way of thinking because it's really natural that we would want this lightness of being, this heartful way of connecting and engaging. That's, what's in, that's what moves in us. That's how the heart moves. That's what informs us. So when we have those moments, those experiences, it's a, it's, it, it, we recognize something. We recognize something in our own being, in our own capacity for what's possible. And then there may, may be the, the, the shift again where, where that that current or that, that force of that, that memory or the past comes back again and, and we feel the, the heaviness of it again. But maybe in time we don't hold it in the same way. We may not be relating, it, relating to it in the same way because we recognize that, well, maybe, maybe it's not so solid as I imagine it is. And maybe there's another way that I can be with this in my experience. There's a tribe in North Borneo, I heard, that believe that, believe that when God finished creating the world, she announced that whoever is able to cast off his or her skin shall not die. Whoever is able to cast off his or her skin shall not die. There's something interesting about that, because here I think we enter into this mystery, the mystery that John was talking about, this mystery or this realm of the deathless, perhaps where this whole realm of birth and death isn't so real isn't what it's all about, but entering into a way of being where we won't die. Perhaps nothing was ever born, so therefore nothing can die. And there's some recognition of this as we let go, as we shed. And much of what we're shedding is our past, is our history is all of the ways that we have been influenced to define ourselves or to know ourselves, the way that we solidify some kind of identity or some kind of view. In Buddhism, it's called identity view. This way that we see ourselves and take ourselves to be something that's solid and fixed and isolated from the rest of reality, this living reality. So at this time of year, this new year, you know, it's often a time where we ask these kinds of questions, and we'll be asking more of these kinds of questions these next couple of days as we go through this transition of this one year to another year, which, you know, we have this whole story about that, that we're kind of living in at the moment. So moving from this one year to another, and one of the questions that we often ask 
is what am I being called to shed? What am I being called now to let go of and to leave behind? Because so much of our practice, so much of our journey is about this leaving behind, is shedding, letting go, so that we're not carrying, continuing to carry the burden of our past, the burden of our history, the con- our conditioning into the present moment again and again. We are conditioned beings. All of us are conditioned because we have all of those influences and impressions from our past that we do carry into the present moment because that's, what, that's how we're constructed. All of those influences from the past. And yet it doesn't have to be a burden for us. It doesn't have to be a prison for us. Some way that we feel completely bound up in our conditioning. We can be free of it. It can be influencing our personalities, our characters, how we're expressing ourselves in the world because of our family and our, uh, uh, our, our education and our health and our, our family structures. All of those influences that we had do make up who we are today but we don't have to feel prisoned by that, defined by that, limited by that. So we're wanting to discover, who am I? What's here when I'm not fixated by my past, when I'm not carrying that definition, those ideas, those, those impressions as who I am, who I take myself to be. One of my groups, one person was talking in the early part of the retreat about carrying his retreat, his last retreat, here into this retreat and, and saying something about why wasn't this retreat turning out to be like that retreat because that retreat was so great. And I know this person isn't the only person in this room who thinks that way. Sometimes we do have this way when we have other retreats that you know really were you know, very more easeful and open and connecting. And then we come here and we just feel all this, you know, tension and pain and some judgment and expectation. And we can compare that. And so when I, when, when this person was speaking, this kind of, this image came to me that in a way what happens what, what, when we come to a retreat, in a way we need to come forth with our empty begging bowls and see what gets put in the bowl. It's like our job, in a way, is just to hold out the bowl and see what comes in. Hopefully the bowl is somewhat empty so that something can go in. (laughs) If it's very filled up and there's no room, we're probably just, we're going to be left with what's in that bowl. But if we actually come forth with an empty bowl, Something's going to come in every moment, every moment. I'd pick up this bowl as an example, but it's a little, it's a large begging bowl, so I can't pick this one up. But this way we can just come forth with our bowls. But the wonderful thing about offering our bowl in this way is that this is a magical bowl. <laughs> 
because this bowl doesn't fill up. We might imagine that this bowl actually has maybe some holes in the bottom. So whatever goes in goes right out. It goes in, it goes out. But we're still receiving what goes in the bowl. But we don't hold on to it. We don't have to do very much with it because it's already going out and something else is coming in. And so, in a way, I wonder if sometimes we can bring that kind of attitude or expression to our practice where we're just taking what's offered and feeling, allowing ourselves to feel some gratitude for what is filling our bowl. Can we be willing to receive the offering? Can we be willing to receive what is put in our bowl? And then know, too, that it is going, it is going if, we, if we don't hold on, if we're not clinging to it, if we let that just kind of wash through, something else comes through. In a way, we have this freshness. Uh, what's in the bowl doesn't get stale or old or moldy. You know, I know, I know we, we know what that experience is like. Sometimes things are getting so moldy that, you know, it's like the smell is getting a little bad. It's like, okay, get rid of that, you know. It's like open it, let it, let it go so, so something can come in that's new. When I was reflecting on this image, I um, was just before the, the, the talk tonight, I was, I was sensing into that image because it's a new image for me. I, it's one that I, I like to, I like right now to be kind of sensing into. And so when I was sensing into it, what, what, what was coming into my bowl before the, giving the Dharma talk was a certain kind of nervousness, which is not unfamiliar. I have an old history of that in my giving Dharma talks. So, but I was noticing how there was just this somewhat familiar kind of flutter of the, of the nervousness for pre-talk. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, that's what's coming into my bowl. You know, and just letting that come into the bowl. And I remember a time where, when that came into my bowl, I really didn't like it. It was like there was a lot of resistance around it, there was a lot of judgment around it, some expectation that that should not be coming into the bowl. And so then all of that would be more of what was coming into the bowl. <laughs> and then the whole thing would be getting very filled up and actually not a lot of room for anything else. And I recognized as I was sort of sensing into this, this image and playing with it a little bit that there seems to be some learning that's happened where I'm not really making so much out of it anymore. So yeah, so it just sort of comes, it arises, stays for a little while, and it just flows away. It's not, there's like not really anything that I need to do about it or make a problem out of it or try to change it or wish it wasn't there, which is what I did for a long time, especially in the beginning of my teaching. And sometimes it would get, the bowl was so filled with all of that judgment and expectation and terror and fear and all that would just get more and more and more kind of thick in there. 
sometimes it was almost, I almost wondered whether I'd be able to actually give a teaching. So it was really interesting to kind of reflect on that now, you know, just to see this kind of shift where the, yeah, so it's there, but there's not adding a lot more to it right now. It's just kind of flowing out, this magical bowl, this magical bowl where nothing really has to stay in it because it'll be filled with something else. So I can see, we can see how one of the, you know, what we do is fill it up with these stories, like the way that I was filling it up with my story about what it meant that, you know, I I was nervous before I gave a talk or felt some fear. And that story, how the story can just be very big and feel very heavy and feel very real. And when, we, when we're not able to really see it for what it is, see that it's a story that we're, that we're building up around maybe a more simple event, in this case just that I was fearful, we, this is what's called getting identified. We get identified with our story. And the identification is what brings about the sense of identity, the identity, the sense of me, the sense of self. This is who I am. And then we get caught, we kind of get, get uh, fixated in that view, this identity view, Sakaya Ditti in Pali, this, this view of who we take ourselves to be. So the issue really isn't so much that we have our story, because from what I can see in my own mind, in my own practice, that story doesn't really stop. And that story doesn't need to stop because, again, it's, it's the way that we express ourselves as humans. We have stories. We have our past and the present and the future. And, and there's a sense of moving in time in a conventional way. And that's part of what it's like to be a person, a human, a, have a personal a personal life. So we have our stories, and, and our stories can be very beautiful. They can be very moving. They're very profound. They're very uh, expressive and connecting and informing. And all that's very, uh, very important part of our way of being together and relating together in our, in our human life. But it's really, again, how we're holding those stories what we're doing with those stories. Are we really getting, as Ruth Dennison, one of our teachers says, Velcroed to those stories, that Velcro mind, where it becomes me. And we become very imprisoned by that. We become very limited and defined by that identity view. And with the practice, as the mindfulness, as we're, we're paying attention and investigating and, 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 and asking these kinds of questions, in this case, like, well, who am I? Then perhaps we start to recognize that the way that I'm thinking about who I am may not necessarily be all of who I am. Maybe there's something more. And as John was saying again, maybe there's even something more mysterious that we, it's very hard to talk about or to know, but maybe just to feel and sense into and begin to have some intuitive sense 
of a, a larger reality or a deeper reality. So what we want to be watchful of is a way that we say, I am my story. This is my story and this is who I am because this is what shapes our identity and gives a sense of ourself. I want to read this um, samurai joke. I don't know if I've read it here before, but it's one I, I like to read because I think it really kind of points to this a bit. The samurai went to meet the Zen master in the local monastery. When the Zen master was told of his arrival, he respectfully received him. But when the samurai began to speak to him, he started to abuse him. You are a pig. You look like a pig. You dress like a pig. You walk like a pig. The Zen master sat unmoved, then replied, You are a Buddha. You look like a Buddha. You dress like a Buddha. You walk like a Buddha. The samurai was very surprised. He was proud of being a samurai, but he didn't know he was worthy of being a Buddha. And he asked the Zen master why he called him a Buddha. And the Zen master responded, A pig sees a pig, and a Buddha sees a Buddha. So is that not like how it is? <laughs> we know that, right? We, we know how the filter over our mind, because of our conditioning and the way we attach to those ideas, can just color our perception. And we say distorts our perception so that we're not actually seeing things very clearly, not seeing reality as it really is. And so sometimes we say that this practice is a cleansing of that perception, cleansing our perception so that we actually can see things more clearly. Perhaps we can see Buddhas where there are Buddhas. We see Buddhas everywhere if we have the mind of a Buddha. Sokni Rinpoche, one of my teachers, says this is fixating mind is like ice shaped in different forms. Ice shaped in different forms, where we actually take this kind of flowing, rising and passing reality, the way conditions are rising and passing, that nothing's really fixed, nothing's really solid. And we take that and, some, and try to solidify it. But it's like water, making water into ice. It's still water, but it's shaped now in different forms. And we can see in a way that the mind, our mind is engaged in all kinds of activity to solidify reality, to solidify a reality that is not solid but changing and shifting and moving and pulsating and vibrating and alive in a way that sometimes we feel and sometimes we know. And when we we start to look into our mind and, and we're following the practices and the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha is saying, look at the impermanent nature of Phenomena. Look how it's, it's not fixed and not solid, that it's arising and passing, appearing and disappearing. You can see this. 
don't have, the Buddha says, you don't have to take my word for it. Look for yourself. Look at your own mind. See what's true. And we can see that one of the characteristics is of the impermanence, and then another characteristic is the suffering nature, that if we're actually holding on to that which is impermanent, it's dukkha, it's suffering. That holding, that attaching is suffering. And we see when we're not doing that, that it it, it reveals this third characteristic of anatta, or not-self, or not-solid, where there's nothing independent, separated from everything else, we see that it's kind of empty of self or solidity. We start to have insight into those three characteristics. We see for ourselves the nature of reality. We see what's true. One of the teachings the Buddha said again and again was that it's unwise view to seek permanence in what is impermanent. To seek for permanence in that which is impermanent. And you can see how the mind wants to create some kind of permanency. You know, give us some kind of ground to stand on, somewhere we know where we are, we know how things are, and things are like this. And then we can kind of navigate and and gear ourselves in a a reality that makes sense to us. And of course, that's natural too, and we we do that. But but to get fixated by it, to then stop there and not question the possibility of maybe some other kind of understanding or some other reality... So we cling to what is impermanent, trying to make something permanent. Ourselves, or others, relationships, or possessions, or homes, or jobs, or families, or our lives, or health, or whatever it is. You know, this clinging on to this changing, shifting, transitioning, reality. And we can see how our minds do that, this objectifying and conceptualizing and judging and fixing and analyzing and controlling and manipulating. And this is the activity of the ego mind or the self. We sometimes call it selfing. This is the selfing activity. This is what we find ourselves engaged in. And when we start to really look, we see, oh yeah, that's what I'm busy with. That's what I get so caught up in. And what makes me so tired. (laughs) It's exhausting. (laughs) This activity that we find ourselves caught up in. But we begin to see it. And hopefully not judge it, because it's not wrong, it's not bad, it's what we do, and it's what we want to understand so that we can be free of it. We can be free of the, the clinging and the holding and the fixing, the solidifying of that which is not solid, this reality that we live in. 
And this solidifying and this way of (laughs) fixing obscures the possibility of a connection with a greater reality. This is an obscuration for us, and we more that we can see it and understand it and not be so blinded or caught by it, then we open up to something. We open up to something that is very mysterious. But yet we can know, we can be in contact with And not only in contact with, we can start to actually feel that we are made of the same substance. Sometimes we call it nature, dhamma. Sometimes it's called love. Whatever kind of word we want to put on it, awareness or consciousness. When we start to open to something that feels more unlimited, boundless or undefined. We start to feel some kind of release from a way that we have felt very bound or tethered or, or, or lost in something that we didn't really understand. So we begin to open to this. This is from Hafiz. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So in some way, the light is this light of mindfulness or this light of awareness, this light that illuminates ourselves, so that we can see ourselves. We can see who we are in truth, rather than these beliefs about who we are based on our past, based on all of our memories and what people told us, and all the ways that we have become to believe all those uh, internalized Uh, perceptions of ourselves. And this light, we shine this light to see what's true, what's actually true in our mind, what's true in our body, what's true in our heart, and what's true in other people's minds and hearts and bodies. So we start to see things for the way they are. And yet at the same time, we still let ourselves feel. We still let ourselves be moved. We still let let ourselves be touched because in every moment we are impacted 
by the conditions that are arising in any given moment. We are, we are, we are, we are touched by that. We're impacted by that. It's not that we're, we're, we're nothing. And, and then what we recognize is that there isn't anything out there either. But rather we see there is all of this, all of these conditions of my mind and my body and my emotions and people and places and, and all, of, all of this world that we live in impacts us, affects us, and we're moved by that. And this is part of, this is what, what gives us the sense of being alive. This is what gives us the sense of being a real person, a real human being. Not that we're trying not to be a human being. Not that we're trying to even, even get rid of ourselves or annihilate ourselves in some way, which sometimes... Buddhism can be a little confusing around that when this whole concept of not-self, like anatta, not-self, what are we actually trying to understand in that? No, we're not trying to get rid of anything. We're not even trying to dissolve ourselves. All we're wanting to do is not to, to relax the tendency to fixate our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, and then to fixate a whole story about that and who we take ourselves to be. That tendency to fixate, the tendency to make permanent that which is not permanent. And begin to understand that what, what brings about that tendency, how we actually, what is that glue what is that glue in the mind that wants to stick on to things and say, it's me. You know, that's me. That's who I am. And then get, get caught in that and not, not, not be able to see through it. So we're not trying to get rid of anything. And the more that I relax that tendency to fixate, the more I'm actually in contact with life the more I'm actually engaged, not only with what's happening within my own mind and heart and body, but also with others as well. There's more of me available because I'm not so bound up in my small and narrow and tight little feedback loops of my own mind. When that starts to get freed up, I'm more available to meet you, to meet life. Whether I'm meeting you or life in the, the joy and the beauty and the, the bliss of what's here, or whether I'm meeting life in its pain and its suffering and its the, the very unpleasant aspect, of the, even the, the, the traumatizing sometimes aspect of life, as John was speaking about last night, wherever, whatever conditions are arising and in, in, in filling my bowl, I can be with that. I can meet that. I'm available to meet that. So we're, so, so we're freeing up the fixation so that more of us can be here to open to life, to meet life, to be touched by life, to be moved by life not to shrink away. 
or to dissolve away or float away, transcend away, (laughs) but to actually be here in life, this first noble truth, this life right here in this suffering, and then the release of that suffering, which is still life, still in life. This is um, from John Wellwood, who is a spiritual teacher and a psychologist and writer, and somebody who has really uh, taught me a lot through his, his writings. He has a book called Toward a Psychology of Awakening. And John says this. He says, Uncovering the raw energy of emotions is like moving into the depths of the ocean underneath the white caps of emotional frenzy and the broader swells of feeling where all remains calm, where our personal struggles empty into the larger currents of life. He's talking here about entering into that raw energy that raw energy of our emotions, that raw energy of our being, of our life. And then he says it's like moving into the depths of the ocean where we start to feel the calm and the stillness, just like at the depths of the ocean. We're on the surface there, maybe all this swirling and frenzy and all the weather you know, weather patterns that affect the surface of the ocean. But at the depth, we feel into the calm, the stillness, the peace, that unmoving, kind of unshakable quality of our being, where he says, where our personal struggles empty into the larger currents of our life. Those larger currents where sometimes we may be a little afraid to tread (laughs) because we don't really know what's going to happen when we get into those currents. But more and more we feel connected to that calm or that stillness or that peace or that uh, strength of our being, that steadiness which really allows us to enter in and we know that we'll be okay. We won't be swept away. We know where that rope is. We can climb back out of the tank, climb back out of the ocean. We feel a confidence in our practice. We feel a confidence in our wisdom. We feel confidence in our compassion, our capacity to love, to be engaged, to be connected with ourselves, with others and with life, as it's arising and as it's passing, as life does. I'll end with um, one more poem from Hafiz. We have not come here to take prisoners but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. 
We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of goodness that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, oh please, oh please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply. Let's just sit for a moment together. attention. Enjoy the freshness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.